Hi, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. And welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. went up through the double oaken doors into the panelled hall, which is the high temple of our profession. There is a hushed dignity about the building which I find reassuring and permanent in this insane and transitory modern world. Side by side we climb the sweeping staircase, past the portraits of great men and the lists of former medalists honoured by the society. I'm a modest and almost painfully retiring person, but the very first time I had entered here and looked up at the portraits, I had imagined my own dark visage peering down from the wall of honour. I had even selected the pose. Seated, to avoid undue emphasis on my body, with my head turned half away, I have a good right-hand profile. There would be a flecking of dignified grey at the temples, a gay little ribbon of some foreign decoration in my lapel, legion of honour, perhaps. The expression pensive, the brow furrowed. Those were the words of Ben Kazin, the hunchback archaeologist hero of The Sunbird by Wilbur Smith. And they describe the Royal Geographical Society in Kensington, which is where we happen to be um, not so long ago for the uh, awarding of the um, Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize. Um, this had a number of categories for younger uh, writers and various other things, but the main prize the main prize went to Emma Stiles for her wonderful book, No Country for Girls. And we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by Emma today to talk about her book. So let's start with the kind of beginning, which is what gave you the idea for this extraordinary kind of road trip thriller with two very unlikely protagonists. Thanks, Diana. And just to say thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to be chatting to you all. Um, I love getting asked this question, and I have been asked it a fair few times. I wrote the book, I wrote No Country for Girls, on the crime fiction MA course at the University of East Anglia. And I started it in, I started the course and the book in September 2018. And when I, I so I went on that course with a very clear idea of what I was going to write, which was not this book. And um, I think in the second week, we were given a writing exercise, which was write a scene where two characters meet for the first time in a public place. And I wrote this scene, and it was in Karakata Cemetery, which is the cemetery where the book opens with Charlie, who's one of my protagonists. And that cemetery, Karakata, is across the street from the high school where I went to in Perth, in Western Australia. The um, the school, the, the high school isn't there anymore, but the cemetery still is. And I, these characters appeared and I had never had such an immediate sense of character before. 
they pretty well appeared fully formed, started arguing in my head and didn't stop. And I knew that they had a lot of uh, stuff to work out and I knew that they could carry a whole novel. I knew that I would send them on a road trip, although at that point I didn't know where they were going to go. It begins. It's a very, very intense beginning. For two reasons. Firstly, you begin with this young, um, working-class Australian teenager. And it's, she's the narrator. And so for the English reader, you're sort of hit with this kind of flood of, of slang and, and dialect. And, and you kind of have to work out. And after a page or two, you sort of get into, get into the kind of mood of what she's talking about. And then something really, really, really shocking happens. So I don't know if you want to talk about that because, because in a sense, it's a spoiler alert, but it's a spoiler that happens in the first 10 pages. But boy, you start your book off with, well, really a bang, a crunch, a crunch, I think you started off with. <laughs> I I'm, yeah, it's fine to talk about that because it does happen at the end of chapter one, although I won't go any, into any detail, but... Um, Let's say an axe is involved. <laughs> a cleaver, a meat cleaver. A meat cleaver, you're right, a meat cleaver, and it cleaves. We'll just say that a meat cleaver does its job, That's, but perhaps not where it's meant to go. No, and according to Nao, who has by that time met Charlie and uh, is somewhat involved peripherally in this incident, it makes them sound like someone chopping into a pumpkin. Let's just leave it at that. Indeed, indeed. I, I, I yes, I mean, um, I don't know, I don't know how many times you had to chop cleavers into various objects in order to come up with that with that um, metaphor. I'm not sure that I actually did, but I did a lot of um, trying to choreograph that scene. Uh, uh, so I'll say I'll say a little bit about it. But first of all, I'll say something about Charlie's character. Yes, Charlie, her voice was so strong uh, as soon as she appeared, and. I'm so glad that I didn't really mess with her. I didn't, I, I didn't, in the edit, my editor is in the UK and has never been to Western Australia. And he didn't really want me to tone Charlie's character down. Uh, and, and she really is a one-off and she does express herself in ways that even I've had some, quite a few Australian readers have trouble getting into her voice themselves. So um it's I've had a whole mix of responses to her which I thought would happen I thought she would be a bit of a Marmite character but she was just such a strong character and I had to leave her pretty well as she was in my head and um yeah and that and that incident I just did a lot of choreographing she has stolen a gold bar from her older sister's boyfriend Daryl which in itself raises loads of questions because who just has a gold bar lying around? So and it's kind of taken for granted that, oh, he has this gold bar. But as a reader, you're sitting there thinking, there's something not quite right here. This is weird from the off. Yeah, I know. I've had a lot of people say, oh, you do raise so many questions so quickly, which I obviously didn't think about at the time. Um, I just, again, again, lots. Of, I'm the kind of writer that once I have a strong sense of my characters, things happen on the page and I don't always know why, and then I have to go back and plot the thing and figure out why. You know, I can't remember now when the gold appeared, 
but I had to figure out why, you know, why why has he got this gold? How has he got hold of it? And that had to fit in with a historical gold theft and it had to fit in with the whole plot, uh, which was a big challenge actually, uh, but fun to do, very fun. Just to get back to Charlie and the way she speaks. Yeah. Two things really. Firstly, I, I'm guessing that, as it were, you weren't having to, to kind of imagine how I can, you can know how that girl speaks because having gone to that high school. Because it's often a real problem for an articulate writer to write a character who doesn't speak kind of perfect grammar or whatever without seeing that in some way you're patronising your own character. You know, if you go into a kind of into a kind of um, into a particular voice, if it's not completely authentic, it can seem very much like like you're talking down, if you know, like you're almost you're you're almost like being a bit snobbish towards your own character, whereas actually Charlie seems completely real. Yeah, I really um i'd written several young adult novels uh which had not been published so i was quite used to writing teenage voices uh but i think the main thing was just that both these characters nao and charlie were such strong personalities right from the start that in a way i could not possibly have talked down to them it felt at many times that they were the ones writing the book and all I had to do, don't get me wrong, I had some difficult times with it. You do always come up against uh, yourself and things not working. But when I relaxed, it really felt like these two characters were writing the story. I just, once I knew roughly where they were going to go and some of the major things that needed to happen along the way, it honestly felt like I was pointing them and just letting them go. Uh, so it didn't even, that that whole, I know what you mean by that question. And um, I mean, it's not so much that you actually are doing that, it's that people can take it as they realise. Yes, yes. I mean, one of the things that we did, me and my editor had a little discussion about was her swearing. <laughs> <laughs> and we had this funny thing where it was like not even, we'd done one edit, we'd done the structural edit. He hadn't mentioned the swearing. No one had mentioned the swearing. So I was like, great, no one has mentioned the swearing. It's fine. And only when we got to the line edit does he then mention the swearing. And he said something like, you know, I personally love the way Charlie swears, but maybe, maybe we need to. So, and I had such a huge reaction to this. I was furious. I mean, privately, I didn't tell him this, but I had smoke coming out of my ears. I was so furious because I thought, don't you dare ask me to censor this young woman. Like, that's not going to happen. But then I found this thing online I did, in the meantime, I did a bit of Googling about the amount of swearing that's, you know, acceptable. I found this thing online from Jericho Writers who run all sorts of writing courses and advice. And it was a thing called the Fuckity Score. And basically <laughs> you just put in like you count, count, count up all your swear words and you put in your word count of the whole book and it comes up with a score. And I was way off the scale. I was way off even the highest scale of the grittiest crime novel. So I thought, right, okay, maybe he's got a point. So then I went through it and I took out, this is going to seem unbelievable to people who've read it, I took out 40% of Charlie's swearing. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, now with now with forty percent less fatty, you tap that on the like a like a kind of sticker and on the front. And then you see when I got the edit because I hadn't actually had my notes from my editor at that point. When I I didn't tell him I had taken out forty percent, and he hadn't. He'd been reading the previous draft, and when he sent me the edit, he didn't have any mention of the swearing. And I said to him, Cal, what about the swearing you said you wanted me? And he said, oh, no, I read it again, and I thought it was fine. So he hadn't even, you know, I'm so I'm glad that I took it out because you don't need, it wasn't needed. And it also it made me really think about how it made me dig a bit deeper into how Charlie was expressing herself because like you have said it's a challenge I I realized I thought okay I'm trying to write a character who isn't very articulate why am I doing this this is crazy but it just because she was such a strong personality and I needed I want yeah I needed her to be able to get she's got a lot going on both these characters have got a lot going on emotionally and otherwise and I I just needed to work harder to get that across and her lack of articulateness is is a reflection of her kind of inner frustrations in in her life. All the things yeah. that she can't get out, and, yeah. and and sometimes those things then express themselves in violence, um, which of course is then what sort of kickstarts the plot. So yes. it it all you're right. You you have to write the character that way because uh, it's all part and parcel of the character, I think, and works brilliantly. Um, I just wanted to talk about um, Neo a bit as well because we've been talking about Charlie so yes. far. Um, where did she come from um, and what can you tell us about her? Well, they did, they really did appear simultaneously and Nao, and they they appeared simultaneously and they had, I knew in that first little writing exercise that they had all these differences and points of conflict, which were just like a kind of gift to me as the author. So I knew Nao was Aboriginal I didn't know anything about her background apart from that. I knew that she was had grown up in relative, well, I knew pretty early on that she had grown up in relative privileged compared to Charlie and that she was much better educated. Charlie has been expelled from school for fighting at, at the point we meet the characters. Nao is in... Uh, her first year of studying law at university. And, yeah, the, I think the main difference between the two characters, despite their different backgrounds, um, Nao, was, Nao is straight and Charlie is a young queer character. Um, the main difference, though, was in is in their personalities. And Nao took, although she appeared, I could see her very clearly, I got her voice pretty clearly, but she was a character that in a way took longer to arrive, took longer for me to get to know her. And that's, I think that's for two reasons. I think partly she's, she's a very considered person. She's, she's um, thinking a lot more about things in those early chapters. She's actually really driving the plot, although that might not be obvious Charlie's the one who's reacting um, and is in is the kind of louder in-your-face character. But Mayor has the ideas, doesn't she? She's the one who's saying, we've got to do this, we've got to, we've got to move on. Exactly. Because she knows, Neo is running from her own incident at home. Uh, and so she's thinking on her feet. 
act and trying to, she's obviously got herself into an even deeper difficult situation because she's run into Charlie uh, and then this incident with Daryl has happened. But Naya's got her own thing going on. So she's trying to think about how she can, how she can get, how she can put distance between herself and this incident, how she can, you know, is she going to use Charlie? Is this an opportunity or is she going to have to ditch Charlie? They're both, I think. There are many times actually, uh, certainly in the early part of the road trip, when these characters just want to ditch each other and go in opposite directions. What was it that made you take that kind of, that road trip? I mean, the road trip is, you know, it's, it's one of the kind of contemporary genres of, of, of kind of thriller fiction. Um, and it's also, it's like the oldest story ever. It's a journey. I mean, it's the original kind of, it's the original quest story, isn't it? Um, and, and, and to an extent, the plot forces them to go on the road. Did, was it that the journey arose out of that necessity to get away from a very terrible thing that's happened, to physically get away, get out, escape? Or was that something that was always kind of baked into to your concept of how these two people would evolve together? Well, when, when in that writing exercise, when these characters appeared, I think, or, prob- or soon after that, I, r- I wrote the scene of the meeting. I didn't know, uh, didn't have any context for it. Um, but I had had in my mind, probably for a couple of years before that, the idea of writing a Thelma and Louise style story. And um, I'm so glad you said those two words. <laughs> I had had that in my mind and it was pretty well as soon as I met these two characters, I knew they were the characters for the story. So because of that, I knew that they would go on a road trip. Uh, I didn't know where it was going to go. I didn't know anything else about the plot. But it was meeting them that I knew that they had enough in them to carry a whole novel. I also knew that they had enough to work out, uh, that they needed a big story. And so to go on a pretty epic road trip was going to work for these characters. I knew that pretty well right away. I'd like to just ask about your own background and how that affected the novel, because uh, just reading your biography, I guess you were born in the UK, grew up in Australia and then moved back to the UK and have been here for a while. Yes. So yes. It's, um, I'm really fascinated by the idea of write, writing about the place that you aren't. Um, and were you always drawn to, to, to write about Australia as, as, as the place that you'd kind of moved away from? Or how did that come about? Yeah, I've always pretty well, without exception, written about Western Australia. So, yeah, I was born uh, I was born in London. We emigrated to Western Australia when I was nine. That was with my whole family, me and three siblings and my parents. And that the year after we moved there, none of us had been to Australia before. We started road tripping. We started road tripping north and that was our way of getting to know this new country. And I came back here in my 20s. I thought I was coming for two years, which seemed like such a long time. So I had my growing up and formative years in Western Australia. You know, I went to, high, I went to school there. I went to vet school there and became a qualified vet. And I worked for a couple of years there in 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 various places, mostly rural places. 
and yeah, I thought I was coming back to the UK for two years to have a bit of a, you know, a working holiday. The kind of classic Australian kind of uh, <laughs> spend a couple yes, of years in Europe. Exactly. Sort of thing. Yeah. And, yeah. And I had a lot of friends doing the same thing at the time, but none of them had British passports. They all had to go back and various things happened and I just stayed longer and longer. And um, one of the... Yeah, so I, I started writing stuff in the late 90s and that was out of homesickness for Western Australia. I um, I was desperately homesick for at least 10 years and it's crazy to think, why did I stay and not go back? But that writing about landscape and the people that I loved was a way of staying in touch with the place. And that just continued. So, it, it, you know, every novel I have written that has not been published has, they, they have all been set in WA in different places. Mm, I wanted, I was going to, can I just ask one last question? Um, you've, you've now um, very deservedly won uh, the Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize. Um, and I'm just curious as to whether because I used to run some crime writing prizes and one of the staple uh, things that you heard from the winners was I didn't even know I'd written a crime novel um, and certainly I think previous winners of the Wilbur Smith Prize um, have, have stood up there and said gosh I didn't even know I was writing an adventure novel so I was just curious whether you were conscious of writing an adventure novel as you wrote it um, and now that it's been kind of recognized in this way whether you see it that way I definitely didn't see it that way when I was writing it. Uh, I was, like I said, I was doing this crime writing course. I felt like, okay, I'm, ri- I'm writing a crime thriller. I did have, I did have the big Thelma and Louise inspiration going on, and so I was thinking of it. This is a crime. This is a crime road trip thriller. But interestingly, as soon as I heard about the award. I kind of felt that we were a good fit. I pretty well felt that straight away. Um, a f- good friend of mine, Lizzie Pook, was on the shortlist last year for her beautiful book, Moonlight and the Pillar's Daughter. And it was, it was that, so she was kind of a bit of an inspiration. I thought, okay. And, and I felt like we were a good fit for the genre. And it made me look at my life and realise I'd done all these really adventurous things, which was very cool. And all summer I've been saying to people, I'm never going to win that in a million years, but I'm just so happy to be on the shortlist, which was absolutely true. I think I thought, yes, I thought we were a good fit, but I think I guess I thought that so much of this adventure is what goes on between the two characters and I thought maybe that wasn't quite enough so the fact that people have said that that's one of the things they love about the book has just made honestly the whole thing has made my year because that's what I was trying to do with this book was to communicate something about these characters and I feel like I've done that brilliant but you absolutely deserve it so many many congratulations yeah it's a fabulous book congratulations thank you so much And we're delighted today to be joined by Georgina Brown, the foundation manager of the Wilbur and Niso Smith Foundation, which, amongst many other good works, uh, manages the awards. So uh, welcome, Georgina. Thank you, Tom. And thanks, Diana. It's lovely to be here with you both today um, and Emma as well, having a chance to talk all things adventure. I mean, I had a great time at the awards. And the thing that really came across to me as I was, particularly as I was watching the actual awards, the ceremony itself, 
was just what an extraordinary variety of of authors. I mean, because the, 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 we should say that the, 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 the youngest prize is for people 11 to 16, is that right? Did I get that right, the age range? We have the author of Tomorrow, so it's a short story competition for writers 21 and under. Um, but that's split into three different categories. So the youngest category is eleven and under. <laughs> and the winner of that. Um, so they're tiny. But, but she wasn't. She was. She was. I mean, the, the the girl who won that was the most articulate, self confident. I mean, the, she probably did the single most professional response and sort of presentation and thank you of anybody. But what was really fascinating was, and this goes back to the whole question of who can tell what stories, whatever. But you had storytellers kind of trying to do the same thing, engaging in the same way, and they came from Ghana and Guyana, and they came from different parts of the USA, and they came from Canada and Britain, Australia, wherever. And it was that's what really struck me was the kind of global aspect of it, but also, which is kind of soppy, I guess, but the fact that so many people from so many different places and so many different ages we're kind of trying to do the same thing and having the same motivations to tell stories. And it's a very human, very profound thing that we just all have, which is the need to express something about our lives and our stories. Absolutely. I think storytelling is one of those, um, you know, it's something that humans have been doing ever since we've been a, a civilised species. Um, no, long before that, I mean, long before any civilization. I mean, there were many people sitting on fire. Well, absolutely. And, you know, there's people traveling from kind of different communities. Um, storytelling would be a way of saying what they'd come from, where they were going to. Um, it was a way of passing information um, as well as kind of entertaining each other in the, in the evenings. Um, and I think that's something that the adventure genre still does very well. It not only can entertain and educate it can also just teach you something new about the world about different places in the world about different people in the world um and do that in a really fun way yeah i mean lee, lee child has always, always has this thing that adventure and also crime and thrillers the whole that's the original form of storytelling it's the the, the, the person who goes out and, and i've spoken to anthropologists too but like the person who defends the tribe from the external threat or the person who goes on a quest those are the original, absolutely basic human human stories. And that's kind of what the Adventure Prize is. Also, from a practical uh, information point of view, uh, I've just been rereading Wilbur Smith's Blue Horizon for a future episode. And of course, there you learn how to cross a crocodile-infested river using only a stick and a piece of string. So uh, yes, there is lots of uh, you know cold, hard, useful information to be had from these books. Um, but storytelling is obviously quite core to the existence of the foundation. Um, so do you want to, for listeners who aren't familiar with all the things Foundation does, do you want to just talk a bit about the, the sort of the, the raison d'etre of it? Absolutely. And what um, it's, it's more than just the prizes. It is. The prize, the prize is our flagship programme. So that is kind of the biggest, um, the biggest event of the year and the biggest kind of pots of work, I'll call them, that take place across the year. So that itself is split into categories for published, unpublished and young writers. Um, so a lot of work happens within each of those categories with each of those different sets of people. 
Um, but then outside of that, we also have some literacy initiatives. So we're trying to get young people reading for pleasure. It's one of the most important things that a, a young person, a child can do, sure. not just for their cognitive development, but also to, you know, to increase empathy, uh, work on their imagination, to improve mental health, to reduce stress, to decrease loneliness, all sorts of benefits to reading. Um so we're, tr- we're trying trying to get more young people reading for pleasure. There's some horrifying statistics um, that over half of young people in the UK, the UK alone, say that they don't read for pleasure in their free time. Um, and it's awful, but still today, not every child in this country um, owns a book of their own. Um, so we do make regular book donations to try and get them into young readers' hands um, to make sure that people do have their own books. And then, of course, we try to make sure that those are great adventure stories that are going to be a gateway to reading for those young readers um, to get them enjoying it and get them reading more. Um, on top of that, we kind of do events with authors, um, taking them into schools. We do online events. Um, and then we also try and bring all of the family of writers from the prize, um, keep everyone involved with us and kind of ask them to get involved in future work where we can do events with them specifically aimed at unpublished or aspiring writers um, to try and demystify kind of the art of writing, the craft of writing, but also the, uh, the behind the scenes aspects of the publishing industry. Um, have you had much feedback from kids, as it were, who have been introduced to reading? I mean, I just think of how I'm sure it's true, probably true for every, all five of us, that reading was so formative in our lives and such a part of developing one's imagination. And of course, TV and movies were as well, but reading was central. I mean, have you had yet people say, or parents say, oh, so-and-so's like, you know, she's so, he or she is so much happier now, or that's, that, you know, they've always got their nose down in the book. Does that actually happen? It happens particularly with the young writers that we work with. Um, and I think that's because of the way that we treat them through the prize. So we've given them an incentive, an opportunity to kind of take part in a competition to write their own adventure story. Um, and like Tom said, we have writers from all across the world, all different ages, um, taking part in this. Um, and we commend 80 of them on top of shortlisting 10. Um, and all of those 80 receive feedback on their stories. Okay. Um, which is in, it's an incredible um, piece of work to do, but it's also <laughs> it's a, huge effort, <laughs> it's a, it's a huge effort. But it's so worth it because it means that we treat all of these writers as they should be. We treat them as professionals. Um, and one day, maybe they will. They maybe they will become, um, you know, the next Emma Styles. Maybe they will write the next No Country for Girls. Um, and the feedback that we see we see coming in from those, um, the feedback, the editorial feedback that we send out, the feedback we receive coming in from parents, from teachers, um, is one of the things that makes us stop and go oh, it's really worth doing what we're doing, isn't it? Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. You know, children who've been supported um, and encouraged to write more, whose maybe parents' English isn't their first language. Um, So they're getting feedback from from us and from other places. Um, Children who just have that little nudge and then want to go away and write more stories and are asking what other competitions are around, what else can they enter? Um, and then actually children who come back and say, oh, I know I didn't win, but I'm going to keep trying. Where can I access the stories? I want to read the winners. They sound like they're going to be amazing. 
Um, it's amazing how supportive of each other they all are. That's brilliant. And in fact, uh, that's going to be my next point, because, of course, one of the things you do, which I think is uh, both is great for readers and also amazing for the writers, is you actually publish the stories, the, the, these um, the, the young people's we short do. stories. Yeah. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners where they can uh, find Absolutely. Out? Yes, please. Um, we have a fantastic partner in the global literacy charity World Reader. Um, and their their mission is to get uh, make everyone a reader. Um, and they're particularly working with young readers up to up to around the age of 12. Um, and they have an app called Booksmart. So you can download that uh, from the Apple Store, from Android, from Google Play. So this year it's been published in an anthology called Aliens, Apocalypse and the Afterlife, um, which you'll be able to find directly on their Booksmart app. Something for everyone there. Um, have you yet had people who, as it were, entered in, in the kind of one age group and they come back as they get older to enter in another age group, so repeat offenders, as it were? We do, we do. Um, it's really interesting, actually, because we read all of the submissions blind. Um, of course, the young writers' details are concealed. Um, we work with a, an incredible team of volunteers, um, whether they're English literature students, whether they are librarians, whether they are teachers, to help us read all of these fantastic stories that we have in. Um, and then when it comes through to the commendations, um, we internally can see their names. And there are names that we recognise year on year. And we know that's because they're fantastic writers and they're working their way through they're being commended or shortlisted even in a couple of cases um a few times over I think that's great i think it's really great i mean after all if you think about sports people go up to different age groups they, they, they don't suddenly drop out of just because they haven't won something under 14s they don't just drop out they could keep on going up through the similar sort of thing you stick with it absolutely um and we try to keep them all in in touch with us um once they've kind of graduated out of the author of tomorrow the 21 and over um we try to encourage them to keep writing as much as they can and hopefully one day we'll see them coming back and entering other categories of the prize that's, that's the other thing because you also have adults who've not been published and and, do. and and i thought that was really and the, for example there was one chap i actually got talking to after afterwards that um, who had written um, a novel based on the, the disappearance, one of those jets which went disappeared over the Pacific or the Indian Ocean or whatever it was. And on the, on the, on the, on, on, they just had this idea about, and I probably shouldn't give away what the idea was, but he had an idea related to that, which was a brilliant idea. And he'd sort of, it had been in his head for like nine years, and finally he'd written something. And for that, and for him to then get, to be seen, to be read, to be heard, to be recognised. That's an incredibly important and wonderful thing to be able to do for somebody. Absolutely. I think it's also that that's a really important thing to remember, that we you, our new Voices Award, which is for unpublished writers, we take them through from those early ideas um, to a finished manuscript over the course of kind of the next nine months. Um, we know that those early the early ideas, they have to submit the first opening chapters as a writing sample, but we know they might have been percolating for years in their head before they've actually maybe had the time <laughs> um, to be able to start getting those down on paper. And then we have other people who just thought, you know what, I saw the award and I thought, I want to give this a go. What shall I write about? Um, so we have writers from yeah all sorts of different backgrounds and from different levels of experience yeah 
it's interesting because actually I my publishing career got started like that um I entered a competition for unpublished writers which was a first chapter in a synopsis uh and I came runner-up uh and then the publishers wanted to see the rest of the manuscript I'm like Ooh, well there is no rest of the manuscript <laughs> so uh so, so then it was like a massive panic to, to write as quickly as possible so I'm sort of jealous of these authors of uh, sorry of the, these new voices who are going to get so much support uh, and mentoring to, uh, to to develop their manuscript? It is from uh, doing it. We know it's a, a it's a big ask to try and get it yeah. done over the course of nine months. Can I just say um, this is the most spooky coincidence? Because my fiction writing career began by coming second in a competition, also, and it was something called the go. World so, One Day Novel Cup. You literally had twenty four hours in uh, divided into two twelve hour sessions on a Saturday and Sunday. To, to write a novel or to write a story. A whole I, wrote, novel. I think I wrote 17,000 words, something absolutely insane. Wow. And, and I came second. And then the book then got bought here and it got bought in other odd countries. So I, was, I was getting German royalties for like a decade afterwards, but it never was a huge hit, mm-hmm. but, but it, got, it got me started. Um, I'd, been a, I'd been a journalist yeah. for years and years before that, but I'd not been to fiction. And it, it that sort of a thing can make such a difference. I mean, there's both of us. Here we are. Both have got into our, our fiction writing careers because of being seen yeah. and, and given a little bit of a leg up in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a contest of some kind. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important for writers to have someone who champions their work because it's so hard to do all of that yourself. You know, you, you're not just expected to be a writer. A lot of the time these days, you're also expected to be a speaker to be able to do your publicity tours. You'll probably be running your own social media. Um, yeah, a TikToker and a YouTuber. Exactly. That, yeah. But to have other people out there who are shouting about how good your work is and how much other people should be reading it and paying attention to it because they're probably going to enjoy it. Um, hopefully that's, that's really helpful. The other thing I think is almost unique about the new voices award is that no one wins it um which i think is brilliant there's there's no kind of open the golden envelope and the winner is um there are is it four or five there's five, five. yeah we, we five just people. open the door well, to a year of incredibly yeah. hard work <laughs> yeah um but because uh, am i right i think the has it what changed over the years i think originally there was one winner and you uh, there seemed to be like a conscious decision to open it out definitely um so you there'd be more people none, so none of them wins in there's not of, you know walking off with a big trophy no but um, <laughs> but they get but, but more people get this amazing experience of the recognition i think we we realized that we could have more of an impact and support more writers in a more efficient way um by working with them at the very beginning of their idea rather than working with a manuscript when it's finished um, and then trying to help them edit it and giving them introductions to agents, introductions to publishers, we thought, you know what, there's, there's so much more that we could do at the beginning. Um, so they get these nine months of one-to-one mentoring and one-to-one editorial guidance with a, an excellent editor. Um, and there are ups and downs throughout that process. Um, and then at the end of that, um, they have their finished first draft. And that goes to, it's actually to Bonnier Books, who we have a partnership with. Um, and they read it and they give kind of feedback from a publisher as well, including not just editorial, but branding. Um, feedback in terms of where their novel could sit in the market, um, who they imagine those readers might be. 
then we try and give them some guidance. And then unfortunately, we kind of have to let go of their hand and push them off <laughs> out of the nest and let them fly by themselves um, to try and find themselves an agent and a publisher. Um, it's an amazing, it's an amazing process. Um, but like I say, there are, they, they enter it, they've submitted their opening chapters. So the next stage with them is to get feedback on those manuscripts while they're starting to write on their, their next kind of 15,000 words, the next trash. Have, have, have one ear that said, um, uh, you know what, um, don't pass that on to anybody else. We'll, we'll, we'll have this one. Have, have they actually just taken any, any in the course of writing? Well, so they used to offer the publishing a publishing deal um, as the uh, first prize when we had it as a whole manuscript competition. Um, so there are books that have been published through that. Um, some of those authors are now on to their second book. So we like to look at it as that really was kind of the, the start of a kind of a writing career. Um, yeah. Of this format, this is the second year that we've run it in this way. So we're now at that you have to leave the nest moment <laughs> from the first cohort right, of New Voices right. writers. But they are five incredible manuscripts, so I'm sure that they are they are going to find their way out into the world very soon. I have to say, by the way, that the main prize yeah, is a prize worth fighting for. Tom and I both turned on us and said, my God, that much? <laughs> £10,000, yeah. Uh, and an in, possibly the biggest trophy in the literary world. A, a mega, mega trophy. It's bigger than the World Cup. I mean, it's huge. It's, <laughs> mega, it's, it's vast. It's, it's a, a very, it is a very beautiful trophy, which I have already polished. Yeah, it's very shiny. You can see your own face in it. Because these, day, these days, trophies tend to be little blocks of kind of acrylic, like trans transparent acrylic with something vaguely etched on them. And they're very disappointing. They're like paperweights, basically. Yeah. Whereas Emma, perhaps you could describe, yeah, perhaps you could describe what the trophy looks like for for listeners who uh, who weren't lucky enough to be uh, there in person. Well, I can't show people, obviously, but I do have it on my desk. Um, yes, it's a beautiful. It's 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 really quite heavy. I did say to a friend, it was probably a group of friends in a little WhatsApp message yesterday that it would actually probably make quite an effective murder weapon. <laughs> I'm a writer, so I don't want anyone to be alarmed at that. And I suspect if you hit someone's skull with the uh, Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize, it probably would sound like smashing up a pumpkin. I mean, it, yeah, I'm sure it would. Yeah, I, I tell you what, Absolutely. if Charlie had had one of those on top of her fridge uh, at the crucial moment. <laughs> exactly. It has got some sharp pointy bits. It's just beautiful. It's I, I don't even know what it's made of, but it's shiny and gold. And with the beautiful um, Wilbur and Lisa Smith Foundation logo, which is a fountain pen nib and a crossed spear with something. I don't know what it's the a, other it's thing. a it's a knob carry. It's a Zulu fighting spear. Yeah, because and, and also the, the nib actually looks like it might be a shield as well. It does look like that, also. Yes. It's incredibly beautiful and it has, yes, and it's got amazingly my name and my the title of the book. Which, by the way, would make it not such a good weapon because they'll know exactly who used it. Exactly. <laughs> yes, that would be. Also, as, as we learned on the night, it actually takes fingerprints really well. It really, really does, well. yeah. It does. Yeah, being so shiny. So I'm going to ask a really vulgar question uh, of Emma, which is, uh, what are you going to do with the money? 
Amazingly, no one has yet asked me that, but I suppose there you go. Tom, Tom Harper, you know, the Will Smith podcast goes to places where other people <laughs> have far too much tax to go. To go. Um, you know, to be honest, I'm, I'm going to actually live on that money um, and it is going to help me write, finish writing the next book. Brilliant. Which, you know, I, I had got. Georgina's clapping her hands in delight. Yes, because this is too. What she wants <laughs> for all sorts of reasons I won't go into. I had got to a somewhat. Uh, precarious financial place and so it's kind of a bit of a life changer having that money actually which is um, amazing because you know we all I mean so many people have said to me since the book came out don't give up the day job Emma don't give up the day job um, which I hadn't intentionally done but various things um, conspired to shrink the day job to fairly insignificant and partly that's because as Georgina said a few minutes ago you're given this I mean I didn't expect to get this even that this book would be published all of that did happen uh, as a result of me writing it on the uh, course at UEA but you're given this kind of full-time job of being an author (laughs) And it just, obviously, to whatever extent you let it, takes over your whole life. And that is absolutely what's happened, which I wouldn't want it any other way. Um, but to make space now to just knuckle down and write is what That's I need fantastic. to do. I can't think of it. I was going to say, I can't think of a better way to spend it. I can think of lots of better ways to spend it, actually. But um, <laughs> but but they would be fleeting. And, spending, uh, spending it to enable more writing is, is actually... Yeah, that is, that is, that is the best way to spend it. You yeah. know, absolutely. It's... It's yes, it's incredible, and it, and it will also it'll also mean that I can go back to Western Australia for some time uh, this coming summer, which I need to do for research purposes, amongst other things. So, Wonderful. Yeah, it's been, uh, yeah, the whole thing has just, as I have said, it's made my year. So good news. How many? There's not a lot of good news around. This is good news. That is true. Emma, is there anything else you need to say that you feel it's sort of not been, not been covered? Um, I think we, I think, I mean, I think, I, did, I think we gave, we sort of gave a good impression of the book without giving it away. No, I think we did really well with that. Yeah. I think so. One thing I could say, actually, and if it works to edit it in, that's fine, but it was partly in response. I realised that Tom had asked, um, you know, about writing from away kind of thing. And so, yeah, one of the, as I have said, I, I, I write, I, I do write, I have written and still write out of homesickness for Western Australia. And I, I do think there's a particular situation when you're writing from afar and you're writing from vivid memories and you're writing out of love for a place that almost facilitates the conjuring up of place better than if you're actually there. I think that's been my experience, although I do need to go there and I do need to ask when I'm not there, I need to ask family and friends for certain sensory impressions. But yes, writing from a distance has really helped me conjure that landscape that's a really good point it sort of um intensifies the mem intensifies the memories and strips away all stuff that doesn't matter so you're distilling it almost into into the most vivid version of itself yeah that's that's really been my experience of, of doing it 
honestly, it, it, I've been reading so much this week because um, Chris has us reading tons of stuff for next week's podcasts. Uh, plus, I'm reading stuff of the stuff I'm working on at my moment. And I picked up your book um, yesterday, um, really kind of read out. And it's such a blast of absolute energy. I've, you know, it's just like amazing. It, it, just, just when I thought I couldn't read another word, suddenly it's like, oh my God, I'm completely hooked. I've got to read this. Um, so it was amazing. This is very not for I cheated because I thought to myself, okay, this is so intense. I, I just, I'm going to go to the end because I need to <laughs> no. know. My, my, my mother does that. That's how my mother no. reads books. She, she, she can't bear the tension, so she always reads the end uh, first. It, it, was like, it, was, it was like, I don't know if I can bear to get so involved with these characters. It's just so intense. And then it all, it's just going to leave me completely washed out and drained and exhausted and not happy. And, and I was so relieved <laughs> that it wouldn't. So now, now I feel thoroughly <laughs> empowered to go back and read the whole thing. Like, Yes. Read the middle. Yes. <laughs> That's good. That's lovely to hear. I mean, there is a, you know, there's a bit of a body count in there, but... Um... It's, it's, it's not so much that it's, it's they think, oh, I'm really going to get involved in these characters. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure if I can bear the distress of them suffering too much. You know, oh, I was going to say... Well, they're going to do a bit of that, sorry. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, but so, suffering is okay so long as so long as there's redemption at the end. There was one, we, when we shortlist and longlist the books, Emma, we've told you this uh, many times, and I believe you had the pleasure of meeting him. Um, but when we shortlist and longlist them, we work with a whole team of librarians who read all of the submissions. Um, and then we have a round table where we fight it out and they have to advocate for their favourite books. And each, each book has been read by multiple people. Um, and... Quite often it's quite clear which ones are going to make the long list and the short list because that's when the, the passion and the drive really comes out. And No, no Country for Girls came, came up in our discussion. Um, and one of our librarians just was asked his opinion and he paused. There was a moment of silence and he just said, I would die on a hill for this book. Huh? How wonderful! <laughs> I'm like, okay, tell us why. Tell us why. This is this is exactly what we want to hear. That was the most amazing thing anyone's ever said to me uh, about anything I've written. And I was so looking forward to meeting him, and I did meet him. I, and he was, yeah, I would, you know, and we had a little chat, which was just so incredible. Um, and he said a very interesting thing, actually. He said that he was a little disappointed, maybe not disappointed, but when he got to the end, he felt he wanted more. He wanted more from the characters. He wanted to know how things go for them. It was almost disappointment, especially with Nao's character. I think it was like he was almost saying, I kind of wanted to know, I wanted her to, he wanted her to have taken another step on her journey in terms of her identity. And that was so interesting because... I knew I couldn't take that step with her. I kind of got her to that point. And then I did feel that her next step isn't really my story to tell because it is much more about her First Nations identity. And I knew that I couldn't do it. Um, but it was so interesting that he had brought, brought that up. Um, isn't that the best thing, though, in a book where, where you put it down 
and you're just so sad to be taken away from that world and you just want to be in that world for longer and you want to know more about what happens to those people and and that's the sign of a really great book is that you immediately think oh my god what's going to happen what happens how i want to be there i can't bear it they're taking me away from this wonderful place you know i know um, you're right that is the best thing about finishing a great book and i've had a lot of people say that to me and you know i was walking back to the tube Wednesday night with Felicity and she was saying that to me and I thought okay this is a surreal moment it's not every day you walk to the tube with a polar explorer who tells you all the things they love about your book and why they're bereft and why those characters yes stayed you know she kind of said those characters stayed with all of us for for quite some time. Because I had a few comments on the night about what an excellent title no country for girls was um was was that the title that you came up with it was the title that I came up with which I'm so proud of because quite often you know your title doesn't doesn't stick and your publisher decides they want a different one um it wasn't the title all the way through I think I came up with it probably towards the end of the first draft um it had girl it had it had country in the title right from the beginning i can't now remember what the working title was early on but it didn't have girls in it um but i think as the gold story the kind of epic nature of this gold theft and everything that comes out of that and this kind of the foolishness of going on the run with something that you know bad dudes are going to come uh, chasing after was so reminiscent of Cormac McCarthy's No Country for Old Men and that's really where the title came from. Yeah, it's a wonderful sort of subversion of it or, um, or alternative take. It's great. Um, I should probably just pop in what the Foundation's mission is because I realised I didn't entirely say that. Um, so the Foundation was established by Wilbur and Niso Smith um, in 2015 and we hosted our first prize in 2016 um, but the foundation's mission as a whole is to support writers to promote literacy and to advance adventure writing as a genre um, which is a fantastic umbrella heading and really really takes uh, everything that we do really takes that on board that that spirit of adventure brilliant and if our listeners have been inspired as they should have been by listening to this podcast to uh, submit their own work for next year's competitions, where can they find details? On our website, um, which is www.wilbur-niso-smithfoundation.org. If you Google Wilbur Smith Adventure Writing Prize, it will come up. Yeah, and I would encourage everyone, if you have any inclination to write anything remotely adventurous, do enter these competitions because they're wonderful, uh, wonderful events. Uh, And as we've heard from Emma, can be life changing. Uh, So thank you very much to Georgina uh, and Emma for joining us. Uh, Two days after the events, uh, I think we've all recovered from from the festivities. Um, But it was great to have you here. Uh, Great to hear about the work of the prizes. And um, hopefully we'll have you back to talk about other books uh, and other things in the future. So thanks very much. Thank you so much. And I'll add a final congratulations to Emma again. Thank you so much. So that's all we have time for this week. Um, But we'll see you soon for another episode of That Will the Smith Show. 
That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne. Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer, Niso Smith.